Hey, just a quick heads up, this episode will include some graphic descriptions of deaths that happened because of a fire. If that's something you don't want to hear, this is a good one to skip. This is Find It. I'm Erin Essex. New York City, March 25th, 1911. On the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors of a building at the northwest corner of Washington and Green Streets, over 200 people, mostly girls, employed by the Triangle Waste Company, were at work today. It was just five minutes before quitting time. What's that? What's that? I smell smoke. Smoke? Yeah, I'm sure it's... Get out, folks! Get out! It's swinging the cab! The eight floors are Within 30 seconds after the cry of fire, this fireproof building is a blazing inferno. Girls rush madly about in a frenzy of terror. The freight and passenger elevators are... It's cheap. It's Shepard. It's unbelievable. I was just in Washington Square Park standing by the Garibaldi statue when I saw this big puff of smoke. It was coming from one of those factory buildings on Washington Place, the Ash Building. I ran lickety-split right over here. The top three floors are ablaze. Those poor factory girls... They're leaning out of the windows. They're shouting for help. They want to jump. It started on the eighth floor, and before they knew it, the flames licked and shot their way up to the tenth floor. The girls are holding each other. They're hanging by their fingertips. We can hear the bells of the fire wagon in the distance. Everyone is yelling up to the girls, don't jump, don't jump. And now, one by one, I hear a sound, a sound that I never want to hear again, a more horrible sound than I can describe. That was a clip of a WPA retelling of the news, followed by an excerpt of a play that you'll hear more about later. These clips help set the scene of one of the deadliest industrial disasters in the history of New York City, and one of the deadliest in the United States. 146 people died, mostly young girls, many of them choosing to jump to their death rather than being burned alive. A shirtwaist, a button-down women's blouse that's usually fastened with a small belt at the waist or worn tucked into the waistband of a skirt. They were often fashioned with lace and available in every color. By the turn of the 20th century, they had become so popular that production became a competitive industry. Most were created in Philadelphia and Manhattan, where Manhattan alone had 450 textile factories and employed 40,000 garment workers, many of them immigrants who found employment at these factories right off the boats from Ellis Island. More than just a fashion trend at the time, the shirtwaist came to represent a symbol of newfound female independence and progressive ideas. Women were finally able to have their own jobs and income. A working woman wearing a shirtwaist blouse, freed from only being able to work in the home, was the iconic image of the women's rights movement. The Triangle Shirtwaist Company was not considered a sweatshop by the standards of 1911. However, even if it was considered a legitimate factory at the time, it was still grueling, dangerous, and the pay was low. The early 1900s was a time where factory workers began working with unions to fight for better working conditions. It's important to note, again, many of the workers at the Triangle factory were immigrants. They barely scraped by. 
Buying food and sending money home to their families took priority for them, so joining a union was difficult for them because they desperately needed the income. To make matters worse, if a worker did join a union or strike, it was common that the police and politicians would side with the owners and often jail strikers. There's more than one example of this type of treatment documented at the time. The story of Jacob Klein, a worker at the factory before the fire, is an example of what it's like to work at the factory. Ruth Sergal, who you'll meet in a little bit, will tell you the story. And in 1908, he was standing up for himself and protesting the low pay. And the managers basically beat him and started to throw him off the floor. And he called out to the other workers, will you stay at your machines and see a fellow worker treated this way? And for me, that's what the triangle story is about, because he did end up uh, getting his job back and staying. And he uh, was killed on March 25th, 1911. Despite this, the Triangle workers went on strike in 1909, two years before the fire. They became part of what was called the Uprising of 20,000, a city-wide strike, mostly women garment workers. They striked to press for better wages, a 52-hour work week, and work towards safer working conditions. What they call the Uprising of the 20,000, where the workers wanted better working conditions and uh, shorter hours, they want to be able to organize. And uh, his famous uh, leader, Clara Lemba, got up and said, I have something to say. And she organized the strike. And it was the strike workers who went on strike were beat up and uh, just treated awfully. Clara Lemba herself was beaten up. And they were protesting what, unfortunately, was what led, you know, the conditions that happened at the fire that day. You just heard the voices of Ruth Sergal and Lulu Lolo. We'll learn more about them in a little bit. The owners of the Triangle Shirtwaist Company were extremely anti-union. They gave in to the pay raises, but nothing else. The factory employees returned to work. What can be escaped? What will always follow? Thank That is a recording from an event this past March called Remembering the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. I came to learn about the event one evening when I was walking home from work. I happened upon some chalk on the sidewalk telling me of a young girl that lived on my street. Her name was Rachel Grossman. She was 18 and an immigrant from Romania. She had died in the fire that day. There was a sign nearby explaining the chalk on the ground. It was called the Chalk Project. This is how I came to learn about the Remembrance event the next day. This is also how I came to learn of the work of Ruth Sergal and Lulu Lolo, who will introduce themselves and pick up the story from here. Hi, my name is Ruth Sergal. I'm an artist and agitator, born and bred in New York City, and currently living in Berlin. Tell me about why you say agitator. Well, I think because I deal, uh, my work often has uh, political or social themes. Uh, people have called me an activist, but I think that's actually not an appropriate term uh, because I, uh, people who really are activists do a very different kind of work than what I do, and I, and I have huge admiration for them, um, and I just wouldn't put myself in that category. Oh, okay, hi. I'm Lulu Lolo, a performance artist 
playwright, actor, activist. Uh, I'm a lifelong New Yorker and a lifelong resident of East Harlem, where I come from a 100-year family history. So on March 25th, 1911, in the Triangle Waste Company, um, a fire started on the eighth floor. Possibly by a cigarette that was tossed into a pile of fabric. The workers were on the eighth and ninth floors. The tenth floor was where there were the offices, and that goes up to the roof. When there was a there was a fire broke out on the eighth floor. The uh, operators called up to the tenth floor and warned the factory owners, but nobody warned the people on the ninth floor. So the fire spread and basically came up and engulfed the workers there. And there was only two exits, one of which was locked by the owners, and the other which had uh, a large bale of, of machine oil next to it, which soon exploded. So the owners locked the doors because they wanted to control the workers from leaving the factory and inspecting and making sure they didn't take any fabric home, steal any fabric, but they also wanted to keep the unions out. And so very quickly, uh, many of these workers were coming out of the windows or burning to death. And uh, in the end, 146 young immigrant, mostly women and girls, were killed in the fire. I count, they feel that was about 62 people jumped or fell to the ground. And and if you've ever been in Soho and seen those old um, sidewalks with little round glass uh, circles that used to be light into the sidewalks, their bodies crashed down through those glass circles that were on the sidewalk that covered the uh, cellars. They had nets and the bodies just fell through the nets. Before the trucks arrived, people crowded onto the fire escape, but it collapsed under the weight of so many people trying to flee. And even if it didn't collapse, it was calculated that it would have taken three hours to evacuate everyone from that single fire escape. The lack of stairs to exit was a known issue. There's documents from 1900 citing this problem, but nothing was done about it. Locked inside, no stairway down. No stairway to the roof because the fire blocked it. The elevator became the only means of escape. The elevator operator took out as many full cars of workers as he could, 15 at a time. The elevator finally broke down, leaving many panic-stricken workers above. They forced the elevator shaft open. Many people attempt to escape by sliding down the cable. At least two of them made it. The others did not make it and fell down the elevator shaft. One of the women who survived said she passed out on the way down, sliding down the cable. She thinks she survived only because she landed on several of the bodies of her fellow co-workers. Twenty-five people were pulled from the elevator shaft alone. Many might have just jumped in order to escape the flames. Elsewhere in the building, some did have access to the roof, but many of them were on the 10th floor, including the owners, Harris and Blanick. They all escaped to the roof. That clip you heard at the beginning is Lulu reenacting the eyewitness report of William Dunn Shepard. And those are his actual words. And now, one by one, I hear a sound, a sound that I never want to hear again, a more horrible sound than I can describe. Thud, dead, thud, dead, thud, dead, the sound of death hitting the pavement. 
The fire trucks finally arrived, but their ladders only reached the sixth floor. Many people had already jumped to escape the flames. Several people attempted to jump to the ladders, but they weren't able to catch hold. Safety nets were also tried, but most of them split when people jumped through them, hitting the pavement. In only one case, it did catch a young girl, but three others jumped after her and they all died. Many jumped or were dropped. There was numerous recounts of heroic acts that day. Here's Lulu again as William Dunn Shepherd telling one of those stories. An unbelievable scene is unfolding before my very eyes. In the midst of this horror, a young man is performing his last act of chivalry. The entire floor is engulfed in flames. He's by a window with some women. He knows a terrible death awaits these young women. He is helping one of them. He's lifting her out of the window like she was stepping onto a streetcar. But she is stepping out into eternity. And now a second. And a third. And now a fourth girl. She's putting her arms around him and oh, how tenderly she's kissing him. He lets her go. And now, quick as a flash, he's out of the window. He's floating through the air. I can see his tan shoes. His hat is still on his head. I can see his face. They are covering it up now. You can see in it that he was a real man. He had done his best. After the break, the trial. But also, how is this fire a turning point for worker safety? or fire safety and the like. And then, has the safety of garment workers gotten better since 1911? And what can you do to help? Hey, it's Erin. I know this episode is a heavy one, but I feel in order to understand the story, the details do matter. I did leave a lot of it out. For more information, you can go to the website, finditpodcast.com. Also, episode four will be ready in a few weeks. It's going to be a lighter topic. I'll be speaking to artist Christopher Janning on an interactive art installation that's hidden somewhere in the Herald Square subway platform. Subscribe now for updates. Also, want to chat about this episode or share stories of your own? Please check out the Find It Facebook group. Okay, back to the show. The fire lasted only 18 minutes. 146 people died. Who were these people? What was their story? They were mainly young immigrant, young women, Jewish and Italian. 146 workers perished. 129 were women. 17 were men. They came from, 74 came from Russia, 38 from Italy, from Austria, Romania, one from Jamaica. Eight were born in the U.S. There were seven sets of sisters, a mother and two daughters, two brothers, mother and a son, the oldest was 43, 
the two youngest were 14. Some people feel that they were even younger than 14 because people lied about their age to work. And there's many stories of people who didn't go to work that day because they were sick or somebody went to work, you know, and uh, left early or just different things that happened in life that some people died and some didn't. And one of the really poignant stories are what we call the four girls from Cherry Street. There was the cousins, Rosina Cerrito and Santina Salemi, their friend, Josie Del Castillo, and Santina Salemi's sister, Francesca. When the fire broke out, everyone ran to the exit doors, which were locked. Josie fell and was trampled, injuring her leg, and she couldn't get up. And her friend, Santina, wouldn't leave her. She told her sister, Francesca and Rosina, to go, to go, to escape. And they got to the ninth floor elevator, but the elevator was going down, and Rosina tried to slide down the table, and she lost her grip and fell. Francesca, whose face and hair were getting burned and her clothing was on fire, she prayed to the Blessed Mother, that's what I've heard from her family, and she survived, and as she was praying, she promised she would devote herself to God, and she became a nun, uh, Sister Maria Albertina, and she doesn't know, recall how she got to the street. And I think one of the things that makes the Triangle Fire so heartbreaking is there was many moments where it could have been averted. It could have been averted if the owners had not locked the door. It could have been averted if upper and middle class women had stayed in solidarity with their working class sisters during the uprising of 20,000. It could have been averted if male labor organizers had more quickly understood and supported their sisters. So there's many layers of how not just the two owners, but many communities did not stand in solidarity with these workers. And the ultimate outcome was that 146 were killed. The Triangle Fire was horrific, sad, and preventable. But few laws and regulations were broken at this time. People knew the codes were outdated. High-rise buildings were being used in new ways. The Ash Building, where the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was housed, was never intended to have hundreds of people crammed onto three floors. The regulations that did exist at this time were inadequate or just not enforced. After the fire, the public, activists, and unions like the International Lady Garment Workers Union, who lost members in the fire, pushed politicians in New York and all over the country to pass laws to keep people safe at work. New York State investigated factory conditions, and those conclusions created new standards that are now implemented in New York and many other states across the nation. That said, the factory owners, Blanick and Harris, were tried for manslaughter but acquitted. During the trial, the immigrants were often characterized as dumb or incompetent, blaming them for not being smart enough to find the exit. Ironically, you know, uh, the trial of the uh, owners of the factory they were you know, found not guilty. It was a very quick trial because basically they had to not, you know, it wasn't a question of the working conditions. They had to determine if someone died because one of the owners gave the order to lock the door. And that's you know, how that ended with a not guilty verdict, which outraged people and really created the movement to change things. And um, 
one of the most poignant uh, things was that around April 5th, the labor leaders organized a memorial march in the pouring rain, a procession for the seven unidentified victims and 400,000 people turned down. It's, if you ever see those uh, photographs of that, it's quite beautiful of people walking in the rain with umbrellas, remembering the victims of the fire. I'll post those photos to the website. Ruth reflects on the things that did change and the impact on national laws. You know, for us as New Yorkers, we know that uh, on September 11, 2001, one of the reasons so many firefighters lost their lives was because they, their radios weren't really sufficient for communication in those buildings. And likewise, in 1911, the fire chief had warned that if things didn't change, uh, they could not actually fight the fires in uh, those garment factories that were coming at that time. And nobody listened to him. And it was only after the Triangle Fire that laws started to change. So for example, uh, having doors open outward uh, from an enclosed space. Um, that's something new. And then later, fire sprinklers and many of the things that we now consider normal came out of the Triangle Fire and then became New York law and from there became national law. How did Ruth and Lulu learn about the fire and how did it inspire them to take action? Like many people, I first learned about the Triangle Fire from Leon Stein's book which I read as a, a, a girl not much younger than many of the workers in the factory. And it's a very passionate and moving account where he went and sought out many of the survivors. And of course, uh, as a young Jewish girl in New York City, you imagine if you had been there, what you would have done or not done in the circumstances. And then as I got older, I, I wasn't thinking about the story for a long time. And then um on September 11, 2001, in New York City, with the attacks, I became involved and created a project called Voices of 9-11, where we recorded the stories to video of uh, people in New York City, Washington, D.C., the Pentagon, and Shanksville, Pennsylvania. But that was in um, contrast to the national narrative about that attack, uh, which was very much only accepting certain types of stories, stories of heroes, stories of grieving widows, and none of the more complicated stories that that uh, event brought up. And I was because I was thinking so much about how we remember things, that's what brought me to want to create a piece about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. We're going to hear more about that piece in a moment. Luther grew up knowing about the story of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. She became inspired to write a play about the horrific event. There was some strange irony or even fate in the people she chose to write about. When I wrote my play, I selected randomly two Italian sisters to be the characters in my play, the Saracino sisters. And uh, I wrote this in about 2001, and I performed the first uh, performances at the Lower East Side Tenement Museum. And in um, 2003, David Van Driel wrote a book about the Triangle Fire. And in it, it was the first time anybody saw this, was published the addresses of all the victims and where they lived. And I had no idea where the Saratino sisters lived. And 
when I uh, looked up, I I just couldn't believe it. it. To me, it was destiny. It was fate that I picked these two sisters. We lived on East 119th Street in East Harlem, only a few blocks from where I lived on 116th Street and 3rd Avenue. And I knew uh, that they would have walked to that location on my corner of 116th Street and 3rd Avenue and taken the 3rd Avenue L to the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. An interesting art project came about with the knowing where the um, addresses of the victims are. Uh, Ruth Circle, an artist and activist, created a wonderful commemorative art project called Chalk. And I'm sure many people have seen this over the years, and she did this in 2004, where around the time of the anniversary of the fire on March 25th, volunteers go out all over the city and in chalk write the names on the sidewalk of the victims who died in the fire at the site of where they live. So if you're walking down the Lower East Side, all of a sudden you'll see, you know, Katie Wiener, you know, Rosie Wiener's name. You just come across this and that, how old they were and that they died in the fire. That chalk that I saw on my street, that was the chalk project. I wanted to know how Ruth started the project and what it's grown into. But also, what is it meant for the people that participate? The first year of chalk was very casual. I had this strange idea that we should go out in the streets and go to the former homes of the triangle workers and write their names and ages where they used to live. And uh, I was not very organized. I just emailed about 30 friends of mine and said, hey, you want to come do this? And even that first year, that initial email got forwarded to many, many people. And I was surprised that lots of folks were willing to come and pitch in. But I didn't at that point conceive of it as uh, anything more than a one-time thing. But then the next year, I sort of felt personally bad if I didn't remember them. And from then on, it's just grown in a very organic way where I just email everybody on March 1st and see who wants to participate. And people are very generous about uh, forwarding the email or trying to help me find people in neighborhoods that are more difficult to get covered. And by now, it's the project's been going on since 2004. And we regularly have over 100 teams going out in the streets to um, inscribe the names of the triangle workers. I don't think I can say what chalk or the triangle fire means for any individual. And that's actually part of the beauty of it. People are called to the story from very, very different perspectives. Some, some people because of their identity as Jewish or Italian American, some people because uh, of labor issues or immigrant rights issues or fire and safety. Some people just because they live in the building and have seen the project. People come to it from their own perspective. And I think an important part of the project is that I don't make people decide. Like they're there to speak in their own voice, however they want to speak about this event. And in an odd way, it's a it's the possibility that we can be in community with people without having to make judgment. Like that's all we're there for is to take a stand in this one area and everything else we've released for that moment. Lulu tells me about chalking the names in her neighborhood of East Harlem and what it means to her. And when I heard about this, I went up to 119th Street and I um, 
shocked the names of the Saracino girls and that they died in the fire. And I also learned at that time that there were total of 10 women who, who lived in East Harlem who died in the fire. And so I would remember all of their names. And I've been doing that. And um, this, ironically, they're, they're, most of the buildings are not there where they live. There's only one actual building still in existence. Most of them are housing projects or going to be new construction. Um, one of them especially, but where the Saratino sisters lived, it's the 25th police precinct. And I've been going there for years. And um, when it was the 100th, the centennial of the fire, I did a performance in front of there, part of it depicting the mother saying goodbye to the girls in front of that location as if it was where they lived. And just recently I was there and um, I was with all the policemen there talking about the, the Triangle Fire. Chalk has been happening every year around the time of the anniversary of the fire. But this is not the only remembrance project. Ruth tells me about how she worked with the community to plan an event for the centennial of the fire. After I had done chalk for a few years, I saw coming up on the horizon the 2011 centennial of the fire. And by then I was starting to be confident that there was a lot of people who were very passionate about this event. They just needed some way to find each other to get organized. So in 2008, I organized a, a somewhat random meeting of people I, who I thought might be interested, and I didn't know what or what we were going to do. And we had one really fabulous meeting where everybody was super excited. We wrote a lot of ideas down on whiteboards, and you know, it wasn't clear what we were going to do or what we were going to be. And then we met for about a year of a smaller and smaller group, and it seemed really haphazard and we didn't know what we were doing, really. Uh, and then in 2009, two years before the centennial, we decided to make our first public event. And as we began to organize it uh, at Judson Church, I realized that the worst thing we could do would be to get up there and, and tell everybody what they already knew about the Triangle Fire. Because we've all been to those events where we're like, we agree with the, the vision of the event, but actually the event itself is not so compelling. So instead of us creating a big program, we just filled Judson Church with uh, rows of open table space and invited everyone we could think of to come in and bring what they wanted to bring related to the Triangle Fire. And we had musicians and food and drink and all kinds of uh, things from Greenwich Village uh, Historic Preservation Society, from uh, univer local universities and films and all kinds of things from artists and performers, and everybody got to show us and the whole community what they were already creating. And in an organic way, we started the conversation going about what we would all do for the centennial. And it was through that action that we realized that our role was not to promote something or try to control people, but to be the mortar to cement everybody together. So we became the web to help lift everybody and help people to create what they wanted to create for the centennial. So it ended up that by the centennial, we had over 250 partners nationwide, all doing what they felt passionate about to remember the Triangle Fire. So there was academic symposium, there was operas and puppet operas and new music and poetry readings and craft actions and 
uh, students against uh, sweatshops, all kinds of things all over the country happening and all connected through the web that the coalition was able to create. And we worked very, very closely with Workers United, the Garment Workers Union, who were absolutely amazing and welcomed us. I think because they understood much more clearly the history of labor and arts working together than I did. And by the time the union commemoration at the foot of the Ash Brown building, we had thousands and thousands of people in the street all there to commemorate the Triangle Workers. By the centennial, we had thousands of people in the street and working in close collaboration with Workers United, there was dancers and drummers and people carrying 146 shirtwaists with the name of each one of the workers through the streets from Union Square to the, the foot of the Ash Brown building. Both Ruth and Lulu are involved in the Remember the Triangle Fire Coalition, and they've been working to have an official memorial made on the site. Lulu explains. If you go to the building, which is at Washington Place in Green Street, there is a sign on the building. But it's one of those plaques inside the building uh, that you don't realize uh, you're where you are. You, if you maybe look up, you might see it if you know about it. But you can walk by without knowing it. And ironically, the building was fireproof. The building still exists. It's the actual building of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. It's occupied by NYU. And um, I've, I actually have been able to go up to the ninth floor and look out of the windows and and visualize what it was like to look out. And there's laboratories up there. There's a science department there. Well, the Triangle Fire Coalition in 2003 had an international competition. And the winning design by Richard Jun-Yu and Yuri Webman uh, was chosen. It's called Reframing the Sky. And part of the design is that a metal ribbon will descend from the ninth floor coming down and you, it will highlight, have the viewer look up to the, up to that floor, up to the upper floors, knowing that's where the victims were on the 8th, ninth, and 10th floors. And part of the memorial floating 12 feet above the sidewalk, the victims' names will be laser cut in panels, allowing light to pass through. And then at street level, their, lights, uh, their, their names with the light will be reflected reflected in the sky, reflected down on a panel that acts like a mirror. Uh, it's like you see their names in the sky. And one of the you know, reasons, too, of the memorial is, is to finally have honor these uh, victims, these working class people whose, whose um, deaths uh, really galvanized people to change the laws of of factories and the conditions of the workers. So one of the reasons I find the Triangle Fire story so compelling is that it shifts over time. So when the project Chalk started, it was in the wake of September 11th, 2001, and the idea of witnessing people leaping to their death. And then in 2008, when the coalition began, it was in the wake of the uh, economic crisis and everything that people were experiencing. One of the things that makes the Triangle Fire so resonant for us today is I think that it's a story uh, of predominantly immigrants and 
we often look at immigrants of the past with a lot of compassion, and yet we don't necessarily have that same compassion as a society for the immigrants of today. And everything that the Triangle workers went through, their fierce fighting to have uh, basic rights and decency, um, fair pay, safe working conditions, are the same things that people are fighting for today. And I, it's important to me that we keep that in mind, that it's not just about the 1911 immigrants, it's about people coming to the United States today. You might be thinking, this fire happened over 100 years ago. Surely things can't be that bad now. Well, you'd be wrong. Many garment factory operations have moved overseas and the conditions there are still quite alarming. Many of the factories are now located in China, Vietnam, India, and Bangladesh. Bangladesh is especially sought out by manufacturers due to the low wages that are paid to the workers, 32 cents an hour. And some of these factories are also extremely unsafe. There are two incidents in particular in recent years that should get your attention. The Tazreen factory fire in 2012, where stores like Walmart and clothing from Sean Diddy Combs was manufactured. Here, people went to evacuate the building after hearing an alarm, only to be told by supervisors that it was a drill and to go back to their workstations. Later, the police even said that the supervisors had padlocked the doors to keep the workers in. 112 people died. Then, only five months later, Workers outside the Rana Plaza building in Bangladesh smile and wave for the camera. This video, filmed by a local television channel, shows large cracks in the walls of the building, which housed garment factories and a shopping centre that may have hinted at the disaster to come. Local police said factory owners appeared to have ignored warnings not to allow workers into the building after potentially dangerous cracks had been discovered the day before the collapse. It's estimated that more than 3,000 people, mainly female garment workers, were inside when the building came down, with the death toll estimated at at least 300, with hundreds still unaccounted for. That video was produced by ODN and shows cracks in the four-story building the day before it collapsed. Over 1,100 people were killed. This is where brands like The Children's Place and Joe Fresh were made. And these are only two examples. The number of incidents in Bangladesh alone is astonishing. You know, people have to realize, too, that there are still horrible working conditions in the factories today. When you're... Um, wearing uh, your garments that you know, look at your label and see where you know where was where was this made who made this how was this worker uh, paid for their services what kind of conditions were they working in uh, that's really what's on our mind with this memorial and also remembering all of the uh, victims like Lulu said Look at your label, but not just to say, I won't buy things from these countries. That's not the answer. These people need these jobs. But what you can do is look up the company and see their ratings on sites like Good On You and Ethical Fashion Guild. 
Here you can see the human rights ratings of all of these companies and make a choice with your dollars to support this brand or not. Without you advocating for brands to support safe and fair working conditions, things won't change. If there's only one thing you take away from this whole story, I hope that it's this. Thank you to Ruth Sergal and Lulu Lolo for the time that you've taken speaking to me for this podcast. Both of you have been such an inspiration to me, and I hope the listeners of this episode as well. There's many ways to get involved. Here's Ruth to explain how. So I would encourage if people would like to get involved, if you want to talk, uh, please check out my website, streetpictures.org, or, uh, O-R-G, and you can just sign up for the newsletter, and I don't send a lot of newsletters because I hate that, so sign up and I will send you notice of the next chalking on March 1st. And everything I did with chalk and remember the triangle fire coalition is in my book, see you in the streets, art action and remembering the triangle shirtwaist factory fire. And if you would like to be involved in the effort to build a permanent memorial to the fire, uh, you can get involved with a remember the triangle fire coalition, which is also online. More information about Lulu can be found on her website, lululolo.com. She's very involved in a project called Art in Odd Places. She's actually curating this year's event that's going to take place in October. The theme this year is invisible. I want to take a quick moment to thank my mom. She introduced me to a book that was the first time I'd ever heard about this fire. It's called A Fall of Marigolds. This is a fictional story that ties together a piece of cloth that follows characters from the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire all the way to the events of 9-11. It's a beautiful story, and for someone that doesn't read fiction, this story just gripped me. The ending had me just ugly cry, and it's just such a great reminder of humanity. I also want to thank those of you that sent me kind notes after the first two episodes aired. I do this podcast in my free time as a passion project, so your kind words really mean the world to me and keep me motivated to make more. As mentioned, the next episode is going to be a lighter topic. Look for it later this month. Music for this podcast was licensed from audiojungle.com. Other materials used were in an editorial context and have no intended copyright infringement. For uncut versions of these interviews, go to finditpodcast.com. There you can also find a list of references and photos. Thank you for listening.